Hey guys, first off, I'd like to wish everyone a happy new year. Uh, welcome to 2020 and episode 21 of the Standard Age podcast. I uh, really appreciate all of the feedback I've been getting on social media, as well as in person when I've seen some of you. Uh, really appreciate you guys listening. Um, in addition to that, if you don't mind, please go online and rate and review the podcast. It certainly helps other people find it and helps grow the listenership, so I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, this week's guest is Dan Brune, the owner and principal of DB Architecture in Los Angeles. He's an accomplished architect, yes, but he's also a car lover, uh, which began much earlier than I even expected. With that, we talk about his younger years growing up in Tel Aviv and how he went from barely speaking English to communicating through drawing. We delve into punk rock as it relates to urban planning, as well as the similarities between cars and watches and how they relate to happiness. What I enjoy about Dan is his unabashed honesty about, quite frankly, everything. His experience, his process, and his approach, uh, even his friendships. And when you talk to him, you quickly realize why he coined the phrase for his business, empathetic design. You'll see what I mean. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great to see you again. Likewise. Um, and especially here in Bridge House. Uh, looking forward to hearing more about that, but let's start at the beginning. Okay. Where were you born? Uh, Tel Aviv, Israel. Okay. And how long were you there? I was there until uh, the end of first grade, so I came to the States in uh, 1986, uh, just at the beginning of second grade. Awesome. So what was it like in Tel Aviv leading up to that point? What were you doing? Just a kid in uh, basically in a suburban neighborhood just outside of Tel Aviv. I remember as a kid taking like a bus to go into the city. Um, and for anybody who's been to Tel Aviv recently, it's much different than what I had experienced as a kid. So how so? Um, as a kid, it was a very modest city and a modest lifestyle. Uh, luxury is frowned upon in the culture. It was, you know, it started off as a, not as a socialist country, but there was a lot of socialist ideals, right? So um, let's say you were a uh, leader of a company or a doctor and the company car would be a Volvo. Uh, because that's like the equilibrium of automobiles, right? They, you wouldn't have anything that's really, really nice. Or the idea of showing off was not at all a part of culture. And it's safe. Yeah. You know, Volvos. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's a safe choice, right? So that's the idea with it. Um, and, you know, uh, environment was always a thought. Water conservation, super important. I remember as a kid... You always thought about that. You always thought about how much you're using water. Um, and then I came to the States and it was the exact opposite where, you know, you're surrounded by wealth. I came to Los Angeles. Yeah, I was about to say you moved directly here, yeah, right? Yeah, I moved directly here to, in, into Beverly Hills, really. <laughs> and so it's it's totally different. I mean, my parents, they basically found a very modest uh, townhome that we were renting. It was like a, in quotes, Spanish style, which to me means nothing. A uh, little home, a piece of crap, really. But they did it so uh, my sister and I would get a good education because the Beverly Hills education was good at that time, the, the, the school district. Um, 
but I remember being, you know, bombarded with, you know, really expensive cars, things that you would never even see. And you might even get to actually magazines, really, you know, like European magazines from a kid. That's what I saw. And, uh, there was uh, racing games on the computer, like Test Drive, I think, or was the game I was playing, where you had like Ferraris, the Testarossa, the 959, like those kind of cars were in the game. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then you got to see them in real life. And I was like, what is going on here? This is nuts. So when you saw these cars as a child, was was it just bright eyed and bushy tailed? And- I was counting cars. My parents got annoyed because I would be like in the car and be like, one Mercedes, two Mercedes, two BMWs. Okay, and then you know, like again and again and again, but uh, so it just didn't feel real to you. No, it felt like the the little matchbox cars that I played with. Only now they're on the road. It it was it's it was bizarre. You know. Okay, so growing up, if you saw Mercedes, it would be uh, the equivalent of the E class, but a taxi cab, right? So that's what and buses. You wouldn't see an SL, you know, that's not a part of it, right? So all of a sudden you're getting all these cars and you're bombarded by it. It's, it, it was nuts. And also the, you know, the lack of thought about environment. It's completely opposite. It's like, oh, just turn the water on, run the hose. Who cares? You know, also what I said about uh, the house, you know, this whatever style house, all of a sudden there was a home that had no direct light, small windows, but the climate's not that different than Los Angeles, than uh, Tel Aviv. So it's, you know, in the same equa- equator line, you know, it's very close uh, longitudinally. And so it was weird. And I remember noticing that as a kid. And I remember, uh, why is our house so dark compared to what I lived in in Tel Aviv? Interesting. So, yeah, but you have to have a certain mindset, if you will, as a child to even notice cars like that. Like, what, what, what do you think got you into cars to begin with? Because if you're not interested in cars, you wouldn't know what a BMW, Mercedes, right. Volvo even is. So, like, to make those distinctions, what... Well, I, I grew up liking the Peugeot 205 GTI 1.9. That was, like... That's not specific at all, yeah. Dan. <laughs> <laughs> that was, like, the one, you know, I remember in my neighborhood, there was one that's 1.9 liters, and there was one that's 1.6 liters. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And it was a different set of cars that we loved. And, you know, the Citroëns that were amazing with the pneumatic suspension. You know, it was just all this. It was always cars. I mean, I always did like that, you know. Uh, And it was the design. For me, it was really about the design and what they looked like. Because as a kid, you don't know anything about driving them. So forgive my ignorance, but was there a big French influence? Because those are all French brands. European cars were just... uh, Okay, so... But those were like the pedestrian European cars. So there wasn't... Okay, so Japanese cars, you know, like, so something that's, like, cheaper was, like, we had Subarus that don't even exist in America. Oh, yeah, actually, maybe they had the Brat that was here. We had those. But, like, a standard equivalent of, let's say, a Honda Civic or an Accord would have been a Peugeot, a Citroën, or a Renault, or a Fiat. You know, we had, like, a bunch of Fiat 124s. Sure. But those were pedestrian cars. Those are, like, the standard run-of-the-mill cars. Alfa Romeo would be, like, nuts, right? That would be luxury, luxury, luxury. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And cars were taxed based on uh, the size of the engine. So you would get liters. Yeah. So you would get like, if you got a BMW, it would be like a 316 or a 516, you know, like really small engines into the regular cars too, because you would get taxed. If you got like a two liter or a three liter, that was huge tax. That's so funny because I was friends with a lot of European kids in high school and they would always joke like why do you need a five liter mustang and like all this stuff we have so much more smaller engines and blah 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 
they never spoke about the taxes. Yeah, so the that's tax. really interesting. I didn't know. Well, I mean, obviously Tel Aviv yeah. taxed you that way. I don't know that Europe did, but it does too. And then, and then there, yeah, you get, you pay just like we pay registration, I guess, based on the value of the car. There's a registration fee based on the cylinders, the power, all of that stuff. I see. Yeah. yeah. So what were your folks doing for work at the time? My mom, uh, you know, she was at home mom raising us, which was amazing. And my dad, all kinds of stuff. He worked in the aviation industry uh, for the Israeli defense, actually. And I also remember my dad in Israel, you have the reserves for the army and you do that until you're about 50 years old. And my dad was a um, pretty high ranking official in the army. And so he would still go back. And I remember to this day, like asking my mom, hey, dad's coming back, right? Because you would imagine you wake up in the morning and your dad's wearing fatigues. Slinged across them was some kind of rifle. And you're just hoping, you know, dad will be back. And that that was normal, you know. And every kid went through that. Every kid, you know, had a father that went back to the army. Wow. So what brought him to Beverly Hills? I mean, other than the school district, but like yeah, okay. but so L.A. Then, LA um, proper. Uh, okay. So in the 60s, my dad actually uh, came to Los Angeles. And he did his undergraduate and graduate degrees here in L.A., Cal State L.A., in uh, biology out of all things. So he was here in the awesome times in the 60s, you know, the psychedelic era and all of that. Um, I know a little bit of the fun he had, not everything, but it's it's pretty wild. And then he came back to Israel. And uh, what ended up happening is, um, well, he got married, met my mom, obviously. And uh, then there was a job opportunity from a company to be a representative, East Coast or West Coast. He chose West Coast because he loved L.A. because, you know, he spent his 20s here. And uh, he ended up coming to L.A. And the company was a water filtration company, automatic self-cleaning water filters as an Israeli patent. And that's how, you know, we got here. He came probably six months before us. Oh, cool. Yeah. Right on. So you're in school. You said, what were you, seven? Second grade. Yeah, Second, seven. So eight yeah. Year, seven to eight years old. So then you go through the school system in Beverly Hills. Like, what were you into kind of as a child on up through, say, high school? Like, what were you doing in your free time? Um, well, I could actually start with, you know, the, the cultural shock of coming here, which was real dramatic. Uh, I had a school uniform in Israel. Uh, Israel used to be a, uh, mandate of England. And so this, the system, even the, the governmental system, but also the school system is based on that. So I had like a uniform that you would imagine like an English schoolboy in a way, like polyester pants and, you know, like the green shirt and the dark green pants, you know. And then I used to have penny loafers. And I remember being so excited because there was actually a penny here. And I was like, oh, my God, I can put the penny in the penny loafer. There's like a little pocket <laughs> for it. But my That's feet amazing. were so small that they couldn't fit. The penny. Oh, right, right. Anyway, but uh, then uh, I didn't speak English and that was a challenge. But. Fondly, I remember there was a, another kid, uh, his name is Ken Takahashi, a Japanese kid, and we would sit in recess drawing cars. And that was the way of communicating, literally. And it was the BMW E30. And I remember that again and again and again, like the face of it. I could probably still draw it. Like I remember exactly what that face looks like. And that was communication. Then, you know, as I started to learn English, it was quite difficult because then I understood that kids were making fun of me. So that's even worse, right? So you're like, okay, so now I understand the word, the language and everything. And then you get that people are just mocking you. And then, you know, the years got on and then I, you know, things kind of turned around and I ended up becoming, you know, 
in quotes, like the popular kid. I had my friend, my girlfriend, everything was kind of good. And then came high school, like after junior high. um, And that was a challenge all to itself, you know, a whole group of kids. Um, It was hard for me. High school was not a fun time. I hated it. I really, really hated it. I hated the teachers. I think that rings true for a lot of people. Yeah. But the the beauty was that um, my high school, out of all things, had an architecture uh, class with like big drawing tables, like something you would see like in the 60s with like the, the, the straight edge, all of that stuff. So I had that from freshman all the way to senior year. I took architecture and engineering classes and that was my place to shine. So I found my little spot and I knew actually if when I think when I was seven years old, I knew what my career trajectory was going to be. That's really cool. Yeah. Were you influenced by anybody or was it literally just like the tables and the layout of this, this, the room that I don't was think speaking I was, to you? If I have to think about what I was influenced by, because I didn't know about architects, my parents are not architects. Um, it wasn't something that they said, Hey, you know what? This is a cool concept of you to become this. Um, Israel, Tel Aviv is, uh, it's actually labeled from the, from UN, uh, uh, world heritage site by UNESCO as, uh, the largest, grouping of uh Bauhaus building so I grew up in like the international style like my parents house you know had sliding glass doors terrazzo floors open plan my grandfather's house the same thing my grandparents apartment building the same thing so I grew up around that incredible and I think I think the city planning all of this was ingrained into my my brain of course yeah absolutely and probably the shock of coming here, and this is the first time I'm realizing it, the shock of coming here and how much different it was and how uh, lack of thought for design, I probably made me even more aware. So I used to spend summers in Israel. So my parents would send me back. And I think probably the juxtaposition between the two probably highlighted this. Like, wow, this is a totally different culture. And probably that's what that's what drew me to it. Like, why is my house shit, basically? Well, the, what what I find fascinating is the incredible irony of that whole situation because L.A. is actually considered somewhat of an architectural city. And like where I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, or, or Cary, actually, right? I mean, it's the epitome of suburbia. Just not necessarily track homes, but track homes. Right. And, you know, there were custom homes and stuff, but like the neighborhoods were like, it, it would drive you nuts, I'm sure. <laughs> so, so okay, so to counter that, I would say, yes, L.A. is known for that and it has great buildings. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright buildings are here. Schindler buildings are here. Neutra is here. Eames are here. And then you have, you know, the more contemporaries like Frank, Frank Gehry. But by and large, the city itself does not have a thought towards aesthetic. You know, like even, you know, you go to like London the graphics, the signage is all worked out. In LA, like, there's not a thought of this, you know? Now we have somebody that was appointed, uh, Christopher Hawthorne, as kind of, uh, you know, design liaison to the city because in planning and this and that because they're thinking about it. But by and large, yeah, it has more notable monuments, but not what you would expect, like, Think about like driving down up and down like La Cienega, north and south. You're confronted with all kinds of stuff. Some of it is awful. Some of it is great. Just, But there's no urban planning thought, really. Right, right. Do you and think I, that is a testament of how fast L.A. grew? Or do you think it's more just like a punk rock, anti, 
establishment type of mentality of we get to do whatever the hell we want. It's kind of we get to do whatever we want, but we're also punk rock thought about it. Right. So punk rock was like, no, I'm going to be doing this. L.A. was kind of like, oh, okay, And and just did things. Oh, you think it like happened to itself? Oh, absolutely. Without thought. It wasn't like a, a paradigm shift where it's kind of like, oh, East Coast. Oh, you're so snooty or this and that. And now we're going to be. No, I think it was just lack of thought. Literally zero direction. L- yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. We used to even have a light rail train. It went from downtown all the way to the beach down Santa Monica Boulevard. I remember 18 years old, you know, like, or maybe 20. I don't remember when it was mid twenties. They got rid of this whole section next to Century City Mall to make room for one more lane. It was maybe a $100 million budget. I don't remember what it was. It is an exorbitant amount of money. And I remember seeing them get rid of that center divider. I'm like, this is the stupidest thing you could ever do because this would be a great place to bring back a train. So it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's just very short-sighted thinking a lot of times. Right, which obviously, like today, there's the train that, yeah, but now it's a pain in the ass to do it, right? It could have just been a light rail train running in this already dedicated zone. Right. It's, it still exists. That dedicated zone goes down West Hollywood, goes down to Beverly Hills, and then it stops. So stupid. Interesting. Okay, so we're going through high school at this point. So your school had the architectural program, right? Yes. Where'd you end up going to undergrad? Uh, USC. USC. Yeah. Studying for architecture? Stud- yeah, it was a five-year degree in architecture. And... Um, yeah, it was amazing. Is that yours? Yes. So there's a, um, uh, I guess it's a letter, sort of, right? It's a diploma. It is the diploma, yeah. actually. Uh, yeah. That reads Harvard University. That's, that's my master's degree. So, okay. So, so you I, gotta... did, I did five years in undergrad, uh, and I worked every single summer in interning at an office, uh, and then two years afterwards working in a, the same office again. And, um, kind of always with the trajectory of going to grad school and, uh, yeah, then I applied and I went to grad school for two years and, uh, came back to LA after that. So I would imagine you and I as well. Do you know Noah Walker? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. Were you, he, he, was, he was obviously a graduate of Harvard as well. Yeah. He graduated after me. Okay. I was thinking we're all like within maybe yeah. a five year range of yeah. one another. Yeah. So, so you guys were not in school together? No, no. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I met him actually here. Oh, funny. Yeah, after the fact. Yeah. Got it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Nice. Well, okay, so then you go to Harvard, and then after Harvard, where do you end up professionally? L.A. Um, so I had, okay, so actually at USC, I ended up going to do like a semester abroad in Italy. Fell in love with Italy, and I did like a few summers there. Where'd you go? Uh, Lake Como. Uh, there was an exchange program there, which was just freaking amazing. Incredible. Um, so I lived I lived in Milan, Lake Como, in Rome. And then I spent quite a bit of time also at that time uh, in London in, in the summers in between there. And I had gotten a job out in an office in London. And I ended up not taking that job and coming back to Los Angeles. And I originally just was here. And I was thinking, you know... Actually, my mom encouraged me to get my license. So when you finish architecture school, you're, you can't use the word architect. You're, you're, it's illegal like in, in America to call yourself an architect unless you've been licensed as one. You can't call yourself an architectural designer, nothing like that. Yeah. 
And so my mom said, you know what? Great. You did all this degree stuff. Why don't you just finish up the licensing, which was great. And I started to do that as that was happening. Um, I ended up getting hired to do my first commission, which was a project up in, uh, NorCal, uh, for a company called Caesar stone. So I designed a showroom and this was amazing. This was around, man, this was, this was insane because to get a project like it's uh, retail and commercial and a showroom is one of the hardest things to attain, you know, because you have to have credence to be like, oh, well, this guy understands the market. We want to hire him. So all of a sudden I was sitting there fresh out of school and I did that. And I was so excited, you know, like, oh, man, the world is just ready to, you know, take me in. And then the market crashed and it was kind of confusing. But I somehow I mean, I have crazy stories of how I got like, you know, my next clients and uh and then ended up starting to teach at USC. Uh, I also taught at Harvard actually before that, before moving back to LA, I taught at Harvard. I talked, taught at Boston Architectural Center. So when I moved to LA before I really started my office, when I was like kind of starting my first job and working out of a friend's apartment, I was also teaching at USC and uh, sharing. Then I shared an office space with a friend. So what were you teaching there? Was it Architecture. Like, an, like an intro course? Uh, design, uh, first year design. Um, what does that entail? Oh boy. It's, uh, I mean, it's really, to me, it's really grueling because you're giving your heart and your mind to fresh new minds, you know, to somebody else. And so it's a two day, 10 hour, 14 hour commitment in class essentially. Um, and you're getting freshmen, you know, to get started on their career of architecture or not. And so for me, it was really, okay, I was thinking, what did I get as a student from my teachers? And it was very important for me to uh, inspire them. And I actually quit teaching, not because I didn't like it. I quit teaching when I realized that I'm not giving my students what they should be getting. You know, I couldn't remember their projects as well started to like forget what was happening and I was focusing on my career instead. Um, but it's exciting, you know, and then they graduate and they're like, Oh, I remember you, you know, you were my first year student. This was the best. This is awesome. And still to this day, I run into like other, like not even students of mine, but students of that, that generation. The program. Like, oh yeah. I remember, you know, and now you're doing this, that it's really cool. I love teaching. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So then you start, what year did you start your office? So I graduated from Harvard when 2005. Yeah, I think 2005. And so I, that's, that's really when I started my office. And, uh, so yeah, it's 14 years now. Uh, and you know, I started getting projects. So, um, you said you had some crazy stories about how you yeah, got some. So this, this is nuts. Okay. So we finished up, uh, the showroom up at San Francisco and, uh, the client had invested half a million dollars at the time into this interior space project was really really cool and uh they didn't want to hire an architecture photographer you have to understand at that time it was nuts i mean people are using four by five film you have to develop that blah 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 it was like fifteen thousand dollars to get an uh, architectural photographer and the the client was like are you out of your mind we're not doing that and i thought the same thing like are you out of your mind like you've invested all this idea was marketing now you're not going to follow through this is stupid yeah 500 grand and you're worried about 15. it doesn't make sense anyway so then we uh i took architectural photography in undergrad and uh, i decided to buy a used uh sinar s-i-n-a-r it's a swiss company the four by five camera i bought this thing i went up with my friend brandon shigeta who went to harvard with me 
and unbelievably that was the start of his photography career so that's considered medium format that's medium format yeah and so now he's a very established architectural photographer and any of the projects that you see except for one is all of his interpretation of dba which is incredible right so he's a very dear friend and i anyway that that started that whole trajectory for him so is he just in-house for you or does he no work no for he has people? his own okay. he has his own uh he has his own practice and he shoots for other architects and he's just so super talented is he still using like a Hasselblad no or? no he's using now uh Sony a7r's okay so like a regular shift and yeah, all that stuff DSLR, yeah. Yeah. DSLRs yeah and actually looking into medium format we had some fun with that on shooting bridge house um no so okay so we finished the project him and I got in a car with all that equipment oh no yeah drove up took the photos but the story of how I connected to the next client was interesting because I had taken really crummy uh, 35 millimeter photos before. And at the time, DSLRs are total shit. And so I went to Sammy's camera and that's like our local uh, Photoshop rental house to all of like Hollywood and studios yeah. and all of that. On Fairfax. Yeah. So I went over there with a bunch of photos and I said, hey, I need to rent strobes. I need to rent lighting equipment. This is what I'm trying to shoot. I'm talking to the guy and he's like giving me like the pointers, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, uh, this woman walks up to the counter and uh, she's tiny and uh, she's like interrupting the conversation. And meanwhile, he turns to her and he says, hey, Hetty, you've been looking for an architect. And I'm like, OK, you know, and I'm I'm really green. You know, I I'm just getting my license too, right. I don't even have that sorted. And uh, hey, are you interested in doing a beach house? I'm like, of course. And I showed her the photos that I took and she goes, where did you go to school? And so, so, well, you know, I went to Harvard and blah, blah, blah. She's like, wow, this is amazing. Well, we have a virgin piece of land on the beach in Venice. And I mean, literally nothing had ever been built there, which is great. Sand. We walked up to it's sand on the boardwalk in Venice. And I'm like pinching myself. I'm like, this can't be real. You know, this is just, this doesn't make any sense. Clean slate. And I'm, I think I'm 27. And I'm like, how the fuck? What? I get this opportunity? And I'm like, uh, this can't be real. Anyway, they interviewed me. They ended up uh, inter sending their like manager, their business manager to interview me to their, their insurance guy to interview me. And I'm like, I'm holding my weight, you know? And at the same time, the pressure's on because I need to get my license in the mail. I've just, <laughs> I just taken the last oral exam. There's no more oral exam in California either. It's now like all multiple choice. And, uh, I ended up getting the job and this is insane, you know? And, uh, and so you're, then, you're basically selling a product that isn't, that you can't even make yet. Not yet. Because the license. Not, being yeah. But the product. it all came together, you know, like because they took so long to interview me, that gave me the opportunity to get that letter in the mail. And luckily I didn't fail. Right. So that all came together, signed the documents. Can you imagine? No. I mean, it, <laughs> I, we wouldn't be sitting here today. Right. 100%. You know, that's no. So how far are you from Frank Gehry's house in Venice? Like four houses, five houses. No kidding. No kidding. So that was the other thing too, right? So all of a sudden then you do like, you do like. You uh, have this shadow cast yes. over you. <laughs> no, no. And you're like looking at the history of Venice. And you know, it's kind of like what you're talking about. Like what is LA known for? Yeah really avant-garde architectures around me and i'm like oh and it's a corner lot uh a corner lot and a half actually 
and I'm entrusted to do this. So I start the design and I'm like, oh my God, I can't do this. Like I can't figure out how to fit everything. Like there's a three car garage, there's an elevator, there's a this, there's all these things. There's a grade change. I don't know. I'm like, this is really difficult. On top of that, there's the building code, there's the planning code, there's the coastal commission, there's a neighborhood council. Who do I talk to first? I don't even know. How do you layer all these rules and regulations? You know, one thing says 30 feet, another thing says 29 feet, the other one says this. Which one do, is enforced? Right. I'm losing my mind and I'm like, got to pull it together. Like, what do I do? But this is actually, you know what? This goes back to my roots, my Israeli roots. It, it would be like, yeah, no problem. I got this. That's like how we're trained, like as kids, you know? And also having youth on your side. Y yes. And I did it. <laughs> and, you know, we finished the thing. We I mean, we got started. We almost hired a contractor. Then, Somebody else like recommended I meet somebody else. I ended up meeting this amazing guy and he built one, two, three, four beach houses for me since then. Incredible. Incredible. And uh, what'd you do with the three car garage? You dig for that or it's, what? No, no. One of the things I never wanted to do was to dig down there because I was fundamentally, I knew water encroachment. And so it's actually on grade, just side by side. On that one, it's one, two, three, side by side. Actually, she's got a classic Porsche 356. That's original one owner, her car. Really, really cool. Um, then we, uh, yeah, I don't know. We, we got this thing built. Um, and the next door neighbor, even before, no, no. As it's starting, uh, the next door neighbor buys the land. And I ended up, he interviewed like every architect in the city. He ended up hiring us. We did that. We're, so now these houses are like six months apart from one another. So we finished up those two houses. And then I was like, this is insane. I must have been 30 at the time, 31. And, and you'd had how many structures two under your belt? Two built how, ho, beach houses in Venice on the boardwalk, which is like, what? This is crazy. And then all of a sudden, you know, somebody else contacted us. We did one in Marina del Rey. So then we had three. And then somebody else contacted us, not on the beach. Then I was four. And then this one client, I mean, years down the line, she's like, Hey, there's another opportunity to buy another piece of land. I want to build something more permanent. And so we're now we're in construction on that one. It's an all concrete three story house. Uh, it's really, really cool. Where is that? Like four houses down. From, oh, yeah. So, okay. Got <laughs> it's it. like you could stand and see them. And actually one thing that's interesting in my career is it's not the, like this happens multiple times. We did a house uh, up on uh, in the Bird Streets, which is like in uh, Sunset Plaza in L.A., like north of West Hollywood. We got hired by one client to do a ground up house. And then a different client wanted us to renovate this mid-century house on a different streets. But it's like a comb, right? So if you have the long street, there's two other streets parallel to it. And they're all in both on dead ends. So you could actually see one house from the next, which is really bizarre. And we're doing another like two houses side by side. So this, this kind of like, that's currently, that's currently. Yeah. Okay. So one finished. No, we did the mid century. That's done. It's actually the first house we ever designed. That's been up on the market. And then the other one that we're building is in construction now and it's huge. Okay. So we're kind of glazing over a little bit of the growth here, but yeah, a little bit, but that's okay. Um, what is the size of your firm? Like in the early days, obviously it was just you, but how, like how soon did you hire your first employee or what's your size now? Okay. So our first employee was hired when we got the second beach house and how that happened is momentous too, because she walked by, we, I was sharing a storefront. She walked by, she saw the model of a project that we were working on. 
she was interviewing a position as a hostess at a restaurant, but she had went to design school and she just said, Hey, let me walk in. And I said, go get your portfolio. She's like, I live across the street. I'm like, go get it. And I hired her and it was like, what, why do I have this employee now? And that was the first employee I ever had. And all of a sudden you have this person sitting there and <laughs> I'm responsible for them now. And it's like a kid, you know, I don't have any kids, but it's like, wow, their livelihood is dependent on you. And that's a lot. And you're 29 at the time. Something like that. Now yeah. responsible for a 22 year old. Yeah. <laughs> Which is nuts. Right. And you're right. like, Oh God, what am I doing? And she's a dear friend. She's amazing. Um, she's no longer with the company because she moved uh, back home to Virginia. But we still, you know, very much in contact. Um, and then she and then we, she moved with us to the next office. And I think my firm has grown up till like six people max. So it fluctuates, you know, between like three, six, five, you know, it goes up and down. All so over this is a byproduct of people just doing their own thing afterwards uh, or moving, yeah, like you yeah. said. It's it uh, need also project. Um, also, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I generally don't like that question of how many people are in the office. And I'll tell you why is that, uh, it's about efficiency. So my office is hyper efficient compared to other offices that I know, uh, have 10, 15 people and they produce far less than us. And so for me, it's about the way that I run the office. I also hire very experienced people. That was my next question is like, what do you look for? happiness. That's literally the first thing. So we get a lot of CVs. Uh, people are always saying to me, Oh, it must be really hard to hire. It's the opposite. I think for us in essence, like I get first dibs, which I'm really lucky to say that. And it's really amazing. People recognize the work and they want to work for us, which is awesome. And so I typically don't have to put a feeler out to get people in. Um, is there any sort of, um, commonality of those applicants like where they're coming from like oh any God. particular schools no. or anything okay anywhere you know you could have france china algeria russia and then all the states in america canada uh argentina we've had brazil brazil is huge for us i don't know it's very interesting even on our Instagram too, a lot of Brazilians. It's crazy. You know, like I see, I follow a lot of architectural type of, um, you know, uh, accounts on Instagram. Some of the coolest houses I've seen, they always seem to be in Brazil. Yeah. There's, there's a good modernist, um, thought and appreciation there. You know, it's, it's been in their mindset They're One of my favorite architects, Oscar Niemeyer is based. I mean, was he passed away not, a, not too long ago based in Brazil. Right. That's interesting. Okay. So as you've gone through the growth and, and so this is all basically word of mouth that you're, you're dealing with, or like, how are you getting all these projects? It's very interesting. Um, so, you know, we have, uh, luckily, you know, I've maintained a good group of clients and, uh, I'm very proud of the projects that we've completed. I don't have like a hidden portfolio of stuff that I can't show you except for the stuff I can't show you because of like non-disclosures, you know, like clients are like, Oh, we can't show this house. We can't show this house. Cause it's in the works or whatever. No, no, no. Because they're celebrities. Oh, I see. And they, or, or they think they're, you know, special. Uh, and so we have a set of those as well. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, but by and large it's, 
word of mouth, you know, one th somebody saw something else. Okay. So we just completed a condo in the Wilshire corridor. Really exciting. One of my, it, it's, and it's not been photographed yet and this will be photographed and it will be up soon. Um, but the client saw that first house I did on the beach called flip flop house. And luckily when he was there, he was with a friend of his, that friend of his, had been to my parents' house, which I designed. And she's like, I think I know who the architect is. Oh, that's I, really interesting. And I got that project. You know, so, so where where do your folks live? Are they still in Beverly Hills? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't grow up in that house, you know? So it's like, as they kind of, you know, evolved and, and I got to design a house for them, which is very common, I think, for architects. Like you hear like this story is like, oh, I designed this. And so, and then, you know, we have a lot of press. Luckily, our projects are out there, um, you, especially the commercial stuff. But I could count very few projects that like somebody's like, oh, I just saw this in architectural record or I saw this interior design and I want to hire you. It doesn't, doesn't happen as much as you think. So having press is really amazing because it allows you the validation. But I'll give you an example. Like, okay, so really prestigious magazine, Architectural Digest. 2015 we were named top 10 rising stars in america and i was like oh my god everything's about to change you know like in your mind you're like this is crazy like this is amazing zero not a single client comes from that you know that happens in apparel all the time you know and and the the funny thing too about that whole equation is that you were a rising star 10 years after you started yeah yeah. You know, you took a decade yeah, to in order to for you to be considered a rising star. Yeah. Well, ar I mean, in, in architecture, that's that's fast, to be honest. You know, it's it's a old person's profession. Um, but yeah, so we got that and meant nothing. Actually, it shot me in the foot. I remember I remember sending a proposal and including press. And I found out through the person that recommended us that basically like, oh, this is a bit much for us. Like not the cost, just like we don't know if we want to work with somebody who is that. Like, okay, who do you want to work with? So is that, it's weird. You know, LA, what's interesting about LA, and it goes back to what we were talking about before, but you can have a lot of people with a lot of money here, but they don't have maybe a lot of substance behind that money. Or taste. Or taste, that's a whole other thing. So, but then when they are confronted with somebody who is a top 10, right? That's, that's top 10 is nothing, right? It's a small number of people. They, I think they inherently feel like, well, I can't control that. So they'll rather go with somebody who is not listed, who's good, but they could then manipulate that person. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. So like that money, they want to be able to like, they don't have a Harvard degree. They don't have a degree. They don't have anything except for money. And that money is their control. And so if they have to confront somebody who is just like a self-made or whatever, that's eh, decent, They'll feel good about that because they'll be able to m manipulate that position. And I, I really believe that because it's nuts. I talk to my friends back east or I talk to my friends in Europe and they're like, what? That's what we want. We were looking for that. We're looking for that. Yeah, that Harvard degree. That Harvard degree, by the way, in the East Coast or Europe, it's like, whoa, God. Here, look, it's sitting on the floor. Like, <laughs> I'm not, you know, it's, 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 it's a totally different animal. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I try to figure out where our projects come from and where to get out there. One of the better things we've had is a few years ago, build.com, which is a website probably most people don't know about. And they listed us as, again, like top 15 firms in LA. 
But guess what? That's Google search, right? So you type top architect Los Angeles, you'll find us. In with the top tier guys, we've gotten work from that. Meanwhile, Architectural Digest, who is like way more prestigious, meant nothing. Today we got actually uh, Home Builder Digest, I believe it's called, put us in the top Beverly Hills architects. Again, it's a list of 10. We're on there. I think that's going to help too. Yeah, sure. Because if somebody writes top Beverly Hills architect, we'll show up. So it's really weird how it all happens. A lot. Oh, some of our projects are friends. You know, so I did a store in actually RTA, which is a clothing store in Melrose. And then we did one for them in, in uh, uh, Las Vegas. I was going to ask you about that. So like in how your approach is, yeah. is different between commercial versus residential. residential. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, but that was a childhood friend that started that brand and then they reached out to us. And luckily, you know, it's been an amazing relationship and I love the brand and I love what they stand for. But it was... Uh, in terms of approach, okay, so I'll start. How do I start this? Okay, so in terms of approach, it was really a challenge because all of a sudden there's a creative director. Okay, that's with fashion, right? That's like not just commercial. That's retail on the high end with a direct path, with a mission statement. This is our brand. This is where we see our brand in 10 years. We need our store to define that. You know, they already sell their clothes at Maxfield. They sell their clothes in Barney's, Saks, blah, blah, oh, no, no longer Barney's, but, you know, they sell them in all these different stores. So they don't need an outreach for that. They need to define their brand. This was scary, scary on multiple levels. One is he's my friend, he's a family friend. I want to do right by them. Number two is then there's the creative director who's showing me all these lookbooks, all this stuff. And I'm trying to understand and get in their mind. And I need to represent that in a whole new way and something that somebody who is maybe not even to their clothes will want to go in that space. But the second they're in that space, they feel like, aha, that's RTA, right? And that's inherently RTA Los Angeles because that's another idea that we had. But it goes back to um, to something else that uh, after through the years, I had an interview, um, and actually it's funny enough, uh, with QuickBooks. So QuickBooks did like uh, an interview, like I, I forgot what it was all about. Anyway, so uh, they interviewed us and in there I came up with the term empathetic design. And I've realized that one of the strong suits that I have is, you know, when people ask like, oh, what is, what is, the, what is the, the secret? And the secret isn't the design, the secret is people. And the secret is figuring out who the person is, who the brand is, who everything is. So the way that DBA works is, I think, highly different than any other office that I've seen yet. Um, and the way that I think about it is, okay, you start off with the problem and the client and the situation and all of that. Figure all that out. Then on top of it, layer uh, this, the other situations of site, budget, time, all of these things. Then on top of that, layer in what is my own language, what is Dan Brun architecture. And what we do is we take all that in, go back into the office, into the studio, come up with idea and really hone it down into one idea. And then we go in with full like 3D renderings of that one idea and present that to the client. I don't go in with a floor plan and go, well, here's version one, here's version one A. Oh, there's version two, version two C. No, it's a completely different approach. 
And we've had incredible success doing this, but it relies on a heavy understanding of who the client is. And that's what we did with RTA. And I remember uh, presenting it to them and uh, Ellie, the creative director, came up to me, like looked me in the eyes and uh, says, how did you do that? Like, this is what I wanted. He's like, I know how to design clothes. I don't, you know, this is not my forte, but I, this, it's as if you were the pencil in my hand, you know, and that's, that's what we're good at. And that's, that's what DBA is, you know? So now you go forward and, you know, sometimes I meet other clients that don't hire us and I tell them the same story and they're like, well, how do I know? And how do I make sure of this? And I, you know, I go back and I say, well, at this point, 14 years in my career, you could look back at all the portfolio pieces. You could see who we are. I'll give you a, you could call all my clients. You could figure all that out. And that's, that's what we do. So we're not going to give you these like piecemeal things. Right. So empathetic design. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks. This week's episode is brought to you by Passion Fine Jewelry, located in Solana Beach, California, where owners Jana and Tim Jackson welcome you into their living room-like store, carrying a wide range of independent watches and variety of fine jewelry. Tim is GIA certified, and they also have a goldsmith in-house as part of their staff. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information, and if you're ever in Southern California, please make it a point to visit the store. You can also find a wealth of information via Tim's blog, independentintime.com. Of course, this is also brought to you by Standard H. Standard-H.com is where you'll find our online shop providing branded merchandise to support the podcast. And if you subscribe to our email list, you'll be one of the many insiders receiving exclusive special offers. Now back to my conversation with Dan. Why is it that you feel like so many stores these days? Because, or maybe this is just me, but so many stores feel like houses. Yeah, there is that too. I've, I mean, there's one I know a store particular here. Forgot the name of it, but it was designed by a residential architect, and it literally was like a house. And uh, I'm not sure that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't want to judge it one way or another. It's very comfortable, um, and I always, I don't. I, I always tell clients, you know, they're like, oh, well, sometimes people approach us. They're like, we've seen you do the residential stuff. Can you do commercial or vice versa? I'm like, yeah, they, each one lends itself to one another. And I try to inform one of them. But I do think there is something different about retail or hospitality, which we love than, than designing a home. So what hospitality projects have you done? Oh, one really fun one is uh, Coffee for Sasquatch. And it's a, it's a, a coffee shop. And actually, this was an organic meet. Like, just she saw our projects, I think on Instagram, or maybe it was the RTA store printed somewhere, contacted me, and uh, I met with her. She shared the business plan. We went to the space, and we formed this incredible bond and relationship. And I, she, I still consider her a dear friend. And uh, the project for me was all about editing down to nothing. And we do that a lot, right? It's reduce, 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 reduce. But I think what is incredible about that particular project is that um, there's a multitude of feelings in within one big volume space, right? So there's a place to sit and like you and I are doing right now, there's a place to sit on a computer with friends. There's a place to have a date. There's a place to sit alone. 
but it's all in this one kind of sinuous terrazzo bench that you know meanders through the space and everything is white on white on white except for this one green wall but um so where is this uh in la on uh walsh no on uh, melrose and la brea essentially oh, there's okay. uh pink's hot dogs which is like an icon here it's like kitty corner from there okay yeah cool that's not that far from here no, actually. no and it's it's a very unique space and uh one of the projects I'm most proud of. And we're still, you know, we're still, not only are we still friends, but the contractor that I had build that, Moda Construction, and actually you just met him, Pat, he built RTA before. They built a uh, um, bridge house for us, that condo that I was talking to. And, you know, the way that I do and I think about projects and, you know, about general, it's all about the people. And so his wife, Rosie, they work together. She had called me before RTA and cold called. And, you know, she started. This is, this is Pat's wife. Pat's wife. And she started explaining what they do. And I was like, this is intriguing. And at the same time, RTA, we were looking for a contractor. And this store is on Melrose, close to like Melrose Place. Um, and I said, you got the job. And she's like, what do you mean? And she's like, I haven't presented a, a quote yet. I'm like, I just, you know, we're going to form this relationship. I get this. And since then, and so then she did Coffee for Sasquatch too, her and Pat. And now Rosie and Claire, the owner of Coffee for Sasquatch, are dear friends. They have a kid that's about the same age. And, you know, we have this incredible friendship. And I'm, I'm just so proud that, you know, when we finish projects, that's how we end up. You know, so I don't have maybe a quantity. Maybe to some people it looks like I have a quantity of projects. To me, I think I could do so much more. Like, I feel like... I could design a lot more, but we're choosy. You know, we're, we like to pick these things and fit the right people to the right projects. Really. Sure. Yeah, my wife thinks it's hilarious that a lot of my good friends, they're, they're all customers of mine. And it's just, I, I don't know, obviously, yeah. birds of a feather here, it yeah. seems. But Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's really cool um, how you can kind of formulate a community in and amongst just business. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, look, uh, I'm what I'm also super proud of is that we have repeat residential clients. They're like, okay, let's do this again. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Like in commercial, yeah, you get it, right? Okay, so we did RTA uh, LA, then we did RTA Las Vegas. Yeah. How are those two projects different, I meant to ask? Wow, they're very, very different. Where is the RTA in Vegas? In the Wynn Hotel. Oh, the Wynn Shops. Yeah, yeah, so Wynn Plaza. It's like a new mall that they opened up there. It's like the very high end. And that, that gave me shivers, you know, like in both ways. All of a sudden... We're designing a store that's going to be around, you know, like Louis Vuitton, Celine, Stella McCartney, which to me, I'm a huge Beatles fan. So like having that there was like, what? Remova, uh, the best of the best and my friend's company. So he made it too, you know? So it's like, what? Like this, I still have to pinch myself over that. And we broke a lot of rules in that shop that, you know, that the wind were like, no, we have these directions. We can't do it. Like one of the things for me is a lighting. I'm huge into lighting. Okay. So I'll tell you what they both share. They both don't have down lighting. So I wanted to create an ambience where there isn't shadow, where you could wear the clothes and see everything. And it looks amazing no matter what. And you could take the photos, right? So like new retail, you should be able to take photos, send it to your friends. Um, so no down lighting, meaning no lights above no, you no not in no no lights in the ceiling the only place that we have down lights are over the clothing racks everything else is like secret like lights that we've kind of hidden throughout the space 
And so you create this like ominous glow in the space and they both share that. They both share uh, the rack system that we've developed of these sliding uh, racks that you could easily manipulate and change. So the idea here too is that, you know, a new season comes along, you have dresses maybe. Uh, uh, so you can adjust the height. Yes, easily. And you can adjust the quantity and you can move them easily. So this isn't, you know, this isn't a big brand where they could have storage of racks and move things around. You know, this isn't that. So they have to be able to rely on a store manager to be able to do that. So we came up with a rack system to do it. Okay, so then... So that was all custom built for All them. custom metal, yeah. And was that built in LA or... Uh, actually, yeah, that was. Yeah, for both of them. That's incredible. Yeah, and all black and steel. So it's kind of like gun metal. Really, really beautiful. So like matte. Pickled, yeah, pickled black metal. Is, I think that's what it's... That's how they get the process. I'm going to have to go by that store. Yeah. You could go by the one here on Melrose. Yeah. Uh, and then the, um, the one in Vegas, you know, we wanted to give it a Vegas feel. Like each one of them has to have context. And so we actually, uh, well, I wanted to have glitz, you know, and so we, the, the floor there is shinier, you know, things are shinier, but we did a couple of things that are, um, were told to me that are impossible, you know, which is really fun. I love that. So I love <laughs> making things float that can't float, uh, breaking the rules of gravity. So we created this shelving system of all glass, uh, that has the verticals in glass, the horizontals in glass, and it's backlit. Uh, and it looks kind of like Tron. So you get these uh, insane, like, perspectival, like, geometric lines. And the glass guy who did it is like, do you know who I am? I did the Coca-Cola bottle on the strip. I don't know. It's not doable. I'm like, I'm not removing any of your glory from that Coca-Cola bottle, but that has nothing to do with this store. <laughs> and uh, we came up with a way to make that happen. After the contractor was like, no, it's not possible. I'm like, yes, it's, it's, we just have to figure out the detail that makes you feel confident in doing it. And it creates this uh, depth as well. And you don't, and the light moves because what ends up happening is the light is behind the shelf, behind the glass, but it, light goes through glass to the front edge. And so then when you move your head around it, you get these lines that are floating in space. And that's like the Tron kind of like the Star Wars, the, the lightsaber kind of a feel, right? Right. So the light... For the store, a big part of the store is lit up from that, which is how it glows. And you don't get it, it's it's very surreal. I love surrealism. And then there's an area that has a uh, kind of like a tunnel, uh, and uh, the tunnel is lined in shirling fur. So the brand has uses a lot of that. But the shirling fur, what it does is it actually soaks up all the light, all the shadow. So you end up with this black hole in a store that's otherwise very luminous at the end of the black hole is an art piece by a friend of mine and uh it's an infinity mirror uh and and it has in it floating roses that are red and you have this like glow all around it so it's kind of like this like the tunnel that you would see maybe before going to heaven but it's in a black hole instead. And you have these roses that are just kind of floating in there in that space. And the idea too, is that you would get drawn into this amazing space. So I've never heard of an infinity. What'd you call it? An, an infinity, infinity mirror. mirror. It's done by an artist, Peter Gronkrest. Uh, and what an infinity mirror is, you, you've seen it. What it is, is it has, you know, a layer of glass in the front, a mirror in the back and lights all the way around it. So when you see it, it looks like the lights are continuing into infinity. Oh, I see. Uh, and that's 
and then but it, oh, this one also has roses that are floating into that space um it's surreal it's something that i wish was in la because i want to take my friends to right. be like, come check this shit out at the same time right now uh there's sema in in uh in vegas it's and a I have, nightmare right it's a now nightmare, but i have friends that are there and i'm like go check it out go check it out this is happening right now so it's awesome uh that store is this I'm really proud of that store. The evolution that we were able to do from the first one to the second one is really something. The room rates during SEMA are just... I don't want to know. Astounding. Yeah, I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know. That's crazy. Yeah. All right, so we have last month, three weeks ago, Bridge House opened. So talk about kind of the the growth process, be it ideation. What? How did this project grow? So we're sitting in the office within Bridge House, Right. which is, I don't know, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way back. Right. It's a very linear house. Right. One floor mainly, but multi-level. Yeah, so this is a very personal, it's my own home. This is a very passionate project because um, literally pouring everything into this. Um, so the way this came about is uh, I used to live across the street and uh, I renovated that house. And uh, I just love the area. And what ended up happening is when I moved in, the neighbor across the street, which is the same side of the street that we're on right now, invited me over and she said, hey, you got to come check out my yard. And in my mind, I'm thinking, honestly, like whoopity doo da, like, okay, that's nice. I like nice neighbors, but you have the same yard as me, you know? <laughs> it's, it can't be any different, right? I'm across the street. Well, it turns out that it's everything but what I thought. And... There's a brook. It's a 260 foot long lot with a brook running down the middle. And it's a naturally occurring brook. And that's why the area is called Brookside, which to me was like, holy shit. This is exactly the opposite of what we were talking about in LA at the beginning. It's very authentic. You know, it's not like Crestwood, Westwood, Brentwood, all these fake things. Like there's actually a brook on Brookside. And so then I discovered this piece of land and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is, and it's in the middle of Los Angeles. If you had to look at a map, it's literally, if you threw a dart in the center of the city, this would be the center. You know, it's like 20, 20 minutes to downtown, 20 minutes to the beach, 10 minutes to Hollywood, 10 minutes to Beverly Hills. You know, it's, it's, it's right there. Um, okay, so then, okay, let's, let's move forward. So I finished up the design of my house, I'm living in there. Uh, ended up befriending the caretaker of the house that was existing where Bridge House is. And um, I used to have a band and I invited her to come see us perform. And she was a music you know, fiend and loved it. And uh, she would come there. And I was like two years of like that. Hey, we're doing another show. You want to come out? Yeah, yeah. I'd love to see you. I'd love to see you. you guys are awesome. I'm like, okay. Then one day she's like, hey, um, lady of the house is you know, going to hospice care. There's not much time left would you be interested in building you know, buying the land? And I'm like, Oh, this is an unbelievable opportunity. You know, it's uh, an incredible lot. And uh, I turned to my dad and I said, dad, you know, you've been thought, thinking about an investment property. Here's an investment property. Let's do it. Let's buy a house. Let's renovate it. Let's flip it. This could be so simple. Well, that was the idea. And I designed a house that was supposed to be renovated on that property and what ended up happening was uh, two things. Number one, I was introduced to a company called Bone Structure, which produces uh, essentially, I want to call it like an erector set to build a home. Okay, so it's, it's uh, beams and columns 
made out of uh, almost 90% recycled steel. And uh, it's put together like an erector set. There's no cutting. Really, really awesome. So I'm like, whoa, this is intriguing. So I, I tested them. I said, okay, well, I want to see how customizable it is. Can we structure the house I've already designed using your system? Sure enough, it worked. Because I've been confronted with uh, another brand before and it didn't work, you know. Okay, so then something odd happened as well. I went back east and I visited uh, in Rhode Island. There's an area, Newport, and there's all these really glitzy mansions, you know, Vanderbilts and all that. And I saw really, really classic, very classic. Yeah, everything except everything, but what my language is. Right. And there was this amazing house, the Breakers, and I remember. Uh, so you've been there. Um, no. I have a friend that lives there. Um, I've never been there, but I've also seen a lot of coverage throughout like architectural digest okay. and, and other things, but it's, yes. it's incredible. It's just like, anyway. So I remember, um, what I took from it was the drive up to the house and it's, you know, you're driving over this path and then you get to the house and you have this like port corsair, you, you, you spin around and it's very English also like countryside home. Exactly. And I love that. I was like, fuck, this is awesome. So then I thought, well, I'm going about this strategy completely wrong. My connection to nature doesn't make sense. So typical home is front yard, house, rear yard. From the rear yard, you, rear yard, you have a view towards everything. I thought to turn that upside down, you know, like let's rethink all of this altogether. So all of a sudden, okay, now I have this kit of parts that could be modular. So I'm thinking, okay, well, let's do that. Let's just go bridge across this lot. So every five feet, you know, boom, 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 column. You have a span of 20 feet sideways. And the idea was to create a home that has an integral connection to nature no matter where you're at. So every window, every door, like looking out is connected to the nature because it's running the length of the lot. So the lot is 260 feet long. The house is 210 feet long, 20 feet wide. And it's situated on the south side of the property with all the major glass windows, you know, the large openings facing north. That way you're reducing also like the natural heat uh, that's coming in the heat gain. So the idea was to create a very passive designed home that, you know, could be, uh, you know, qualified as net zero and thinking about all these things. And, uh, and that's how we are here. I mean, that's like, that's, you know, there's a lot of steps that happen in between. And one of the things that happened actually going back full, full, fully to Caesar stone, the, the first project. So when, uh, the Caesar stone project was done, um, they did invite the editor and the founder of dwell magazine. And, uh, she was out there and, uh, I came out there too, to give the presentation of the project, which was incredible. And I befriended her and we became, you know, dear friends. And, uh, we fast forward to around the time of the thought of bridge house. And I did this rendering. I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm crazy. Let's do it. And, uh, I met Michaela and I showed her the rendering and she says, she dropped it. She says, that's it. This is the next dwell home. So now that meant that I had media coverage. Once I had media coverage, I then thought, well, let's use this as a marketing scheme. So I became like a producer. So I used this, this house, the idea is to share the story. So, all the products, we have like 65 plus sponsors. So everything you touch and see and feel is by a sponsor. And it is through relationships that I've built in 20 plus years in the industry. 
and the idea is to come up with new ways and new thinking for people to see a home and to experience things and to take away something from here and so we put together this like think tank and the idea is that the house you know is located in the center of the city and to be able to host events host parties and get people to see what i think a home can be and how you could accomplish it and uh it goes back even another step because we talked about LA and the history and the rich history of architecture. Um, there was the case study house movement, which basically took the idea of how do you build on unbuildable sites, you know, and how do you supply homes to uh, soldiers coming back from the war, affordable housing. So the idea here is to kind of say, okay, people, let's stop thinking about, you know, front yard, rear yard. You have all this land. Let's think about another way of using it. And uh, I want people to also stop thinking about like square footage size. And this goes back to the question you asked me about how many employees I have. Is that really the problem? Can we produce it? That's the issue, right? So it's, it's the same thing as if you, if you buy an iPhone, you know the screen size, you know the storage, but that's like the program of a house, right? So it's like, okay, I have two kids. I need X amount of bedrooms. You don't know the battery size, but you know how long the battery lasts. So it's the same thing with the house. I could tell you how big it is in area, but how does it feel is not quantifiable. So that's also something I want people to erase because what we battle against as architects here is that realtors lead the market in a way and banks lead the market and they give you a loan based on dollars per square foot. Yeah, I was about to say everything is price per square foot. Yeah, and that's not the way to quantify quality at all. So that, this, this house is supposed to do a lot. And uh, it's very exciting to be here right now and just the beginning of it, the infancy. It's a baby. Let's let it live. Yeah, it's something as I've been like working on, my wife and I are doing some work to our house and such. And, and I toured uh, the Hollyhock house oh, a cool. couple of weeks ago. So you want to go to talk about size not being quality or being, you know, yeah, justified. Yeah. But if you go look at like the trims and the intricate detail that's in that house, the chair railing, the moldings, everything. You can't build a house like that right no, now. No, like, no. I mean, you can, but it will be 10 times more expensive than the next house of the same square footage. Correct. Correct. And but so like, there's that argument, right? Of like, God, where did all that go? But now like with, but I will say things like bridge house, which seems very minimal, have an incredible amount of detail in order to present that minimalism. Oh, absolutely. You know, the minimal uh, editing, and even if you're like, you know, uh, a cinematographer and making a movie, editing or writing a book or anything is, editing is the true art. You know, getting things down to be nothing. That's, that's something, you know? And so, and I say this, okay, so Bridge House is really about, you know, it's a rectangle, as I said, like about 20 feet by about 210 feet. But the real beauty for me and the real winner for me is that there's so many different fields and so many different spaces within that confined geometry. So my, my thing is honestly like less is more, right? So you see all these uh, designed things that have angles and blah, 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 and all this shit. And like for me, it's like, okay, well, let's reduce that to nothing. And so this house really becomes about light. It becomes about volume and space and nature and that's it. So the materials I chose were to complement, and they weren't there, you know, like magazines ask me what's trending right now. I don't know. Look, look at the floors. It's, it's what I grew up with in Israel. Honestly, it's like terrazzo floors, like 
that's that hasn't changed, you know, and it's about the reflection that you get on the floor. It's these kind of a things and everything is supposed to be timeless and really reductive. I believe in that big time. Yeah, it's kind of funny you mentioned the reflection because like there's basically no lights on in this room. Right. But yet it's very well lit. Yeah. And I mean, even if we go to the so-called basement or the music room, there's a few uh, transom windows and there's a couple of, you know, bigger, taller windows that we because we cut the ground away from it. And there too, you until sunset, you're totally good. Like, yeah, it's it's understanding light is super important. That's awesome. Well, to come full circle back to your childhood and noticing and drawing like E30s and such, <laughs> you're a big car guy. Uh, absolutely. Uh, that's actually, I think, part of how, how we met. We kind of met was through absolutely. Instagram and cars. Yeah. You have a vintage 911. Yeah. But yet you did mention the E30 was your your car of choice when drawing yeah that became your language right so absolutely you also mentioned the bmw event so let's talk about the bmw event for just a hot second oh absolutely i mean uh so the bm yeah the the e30 also my friend's dad growing up in israel had one of those and actually it's so different than the specs that you have in america like again it was a probably a 316 had power windows in the front no power windows in the back you know like you don't even get that in America. That's how like minimal it was. So that E30 to me was like the ethos of design. And I grew up with that. Now, years down the line, I think like my cars of choice has been, I've had, I don't countless BMWs one after another and after for like 20 plus years. And, uh, Do you have a favorite. I had an E39 528 stick, which was, it's, I wish I kept that, you know, I don't, they don't exist. Right. It was, it was a beautiful anthracite with gray leather. And it was just, I love that one. Um, that was one of my top right now. I have the F10 M5, which is actually, this was nuts. It's the last one produced at least for America, uh, which was crazy. And I absolutely love that one. And of is course, that manual? No, no. DSG dual, dual clutch. Yeah. Uh, but it, leaps and bounds different than the current one right it's it's an animal it's an animal and then uh obviously uh now i also have uh, i mean the i8 as part of my partnership with bmw and so okay so and i say that obviously it's not maybe not so obvious but uh so what ended up happening as bridge house was starting and uh i've always been infatuated with car design as i mentioned you know it's like actually i applied to school my portfolio was car design I'd always envisioned myself as having a car manufacturing, car design, something like that. You know? Well, especially with Art Center right here. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, no, this was like, but, you know, I didn't pursue that because I didn't want to end up being the door handle guy. <laughs> I didn't want to end up being the, the, the license. You know, you know, like... Not that there's anything wrong with being the no, door but, handle but guy. No, but it, I had a bigger vision. I got you. And You wanted to do the whole project. I wanted to do the whole project. And right. I guess what, I've, what I learned at the time was that's impossible. It is possible. It's just very, you know, it's, I guess, the same with architecture, but it even maybe harder. Um, so, um, okay, so we started Bridge House and I'm talking about all the net zero things, all the solar panels everything about that and all my partners and I'm thinking about the future. And at, at the time I'm driving a car that's, you know, it was the M five it's, you know, and it's taking all this gas. I was about to say to offset. Yeah. It's not okay. You know, it's it, the classic LA thing to have the Range Rover and a Prius. Yeah. So it doesn't just, it just didn't feel right. You know, it didn't feel like it's part of the project. 
And another one of my partners is Bosch and we have the electric car charger there. You know, I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And uh, I'm like, well, I need to con- contact BMW and I need to form a partnership because I, you know, I honestly believe that the i-series cars are just incredible. And, you know, people talk about range, blah, blah, blah. This will, this will go back to uh, my argument about size. You know, it's, it's the same thing about horsepower. Let's, that's, that's so not looking towards the future, right? It's the same thing. Like, how many horsepower do you have? Well, how much does the car weigh? Yeah, exactly. So what I commend BMW on is the fact that, you know, the i-range rethinks structure. So it's like using the, the plastic reinforced uh, fiber, uh, carbon fiber, recycled materials on the inside of the car. The i3 is a whole new concept of what a vehicle could look like in the future. Some people think it's ugly. I think it's just utilitarianly beautiful. I, it's an incredible machine. So, and still to this day, I don't see another car manufacturer who said, you know what, let's think about uh, what a car looks like in the future. Instead, everybody's electrifying the standard uh, three box, the standard five box car design. You know, what is a Tesla? It's a, it's a regular unibody car with a battery pack skateboard underneath it. Even a new Porsche Taycan, you know, it's, it's a standard four door with a lift gate. There's, we need to think about that and the materials that are used. So I contacted the marketing team at BMW West Coast and I said, hey, I have this project. I'm a huge avid designer. I'm a huge avid BMW fan. The bridge house is built using this bone structure component of kit. So is the i3 series, the i8 series. You know, they're all thinking. You guys are thinking about that in the future. Like, how is that going to be built? And I said, this would be an amazing partnership that we could form and use Bridge House as a way, honestly, to bridge design, culture, the forward thinking of, of, of cars in the home. And let's combine that together. The house is located a few blocks from Beverly Hills BMW, which is just down the street, one of the biggest dealers in, the, in America. And, uh, you know, I persevered. And uh, I remember I, I drove up to Car Week in Monterey. Uh, I met with the West Coast uh, heads, Matt Collins and Lindsay Covington. And, and I had a great meeting with them. And, uh, and here we are today. So then, full circle, I... We released the Vision M next and made his LA debut at Bridge House. You know, I get shivers thinking about this. This happened uh, two weeks ago. And uh, I asked uh, Lindsay, the marketing head for the West Coast, I said, hey, can I give a little talk? I'd love to say a few words about the E30 and how this was my language. You know, people put their words together. I put pen and paper and this is how I communicated now today all of a sudden i have this one of one car in this one of one home let's start our relationship to the world based on that and it, i'll never forget that date it's awesome thank you yeah that's super cool so where do you stand with porsche these days <laughs> i think i made myself pretty clear i mean it, it's a vintage right i have a vintage and that's uh, and a lot of people are going to hate me but to me uh and I'll, i i don't care i mean honesty and authenticity is where i've always stood uh, the Porsche world ended to me with a 997. Okay. And that's, uh, that was the real bitter end. I even like the 996, the 996 GT3 is a killer car. Um, and yeah, I don't see anything, you know, and it's, it's, yeah, I, I go where, where I see the future and that's it. Well, that's cool. Um, based on like the work that you've 
done, right, in the history of, of DBA, what's sort of been the hardest part for you? I think, okay, it's always the same thing. I think that's really hard is the fact that I'm not a specialist in anything. I don't want to be ever remembered with a legacy of, oh, yeah, Dan, he's the one that just did houses. Or, oh, yeah, 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 they were really good at store design or restaurants or whatever you call it. So I always like to challenge myself and to take on or to find a clientele or hopefully that they find me to do different types of projects, right? So that is always a challenge. You know, right now we're interviewing for another clothing store, okay? We've already done two that are successful. But the question I get, this is a young brand. And, you know, they're like questioning me like, well, what have you done? And how many have you done? And blah, 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 all this crap. And it happens again and again. And it's shocking to me. And meanwhile, I point them back. I said, okay, fair enough. You could hire a specialist that that's all they do is retail design. But guess what? They're going to open up their little, um, you know, encyclopedia of parts and give you those. I'm not, I'm going to give you, you again, you know, like showing you now that is, you know, that's super important. At the same time, I pinpoint the fact that, you know, the projects that we completed, like the RTA, it won, it was a cover on, on the, it was VMSD, Visual Store, VSMD, Visual Store and Merchandising Design. We won the number one renovation in America. It was like Bloomingdale's, like big brands were doing it at the same time. We got that spot. I'd, and it's in quotes, I don't know resident, re retail design. So I think I do. And, it, you know, their, their store ended up becoming super successful too, monetarily. So that's my challenge. You know, like I want to go into, I want people to recognize us and understand that we could do all kinds of projects all over the globe. So my dream would be to do, you know, like spiritual spaces, um, to do, uh, libraries, to do galleries, um, more civic work, things like that. And for people to understand that we can take that on. Right. Do you think that's motivated by the number of people that would subsequently be able to experience said space? Why I want to do these? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, so like when you do a residential project, you know, one person, four people, 20 people you, you, you affect when you do a store, it's a lot. When you do a civic center, even more yeah, a museum, or, museum, a yeah. uh, concert hall. I don't know. So to me, I strongly believe that design in general makes you feel better. It could be the shirt that you put on. You put on a shirt and it feels good. It fits right. Guess what? you smile right there. Like if I buy a pair of sunglasses, I don't have to look at the mirror. I know when I put them on, like, Oh, that fits, you know, and you're done. Space does the same thing to you. So we just completed that condo I was telling you about, and this was done for a guy who's, I mean, he is now like a, a mentor and like a second father figure to me, you know, which is actually interesting that we think about that. Cause the one Hetty who, uh, I designed the Sammy's camera house for, she's my second mother figure. You know, so now I have a mother and I have a father who are both clients. Very, very lucky. Yeah, very. And uh, it was actually just his birthday and I gave a speech telling him that. But um, uh, he told me, you know, he's one of, you know, the most affluent people that I've ever worked with. And he's had homes all over. And he recently told me, you know, I'm going to Japan and this is the first time I can't wait to go back home. He hasn't left. And he's telling me I can't wait to go back here. Because what you've created through this minimalism that some people, he even said it himself, my discount because it looks simplistic is perfect. 
says, maybe you got lucky, but I don't know. He's like, I turn my head. I wake up in the morning. I open the shades. I see that. I'm like, ah. Oh. And so that to me is everything. The, the happiness that he achieves, that he feels, I want to share that with a lot of people, not just one person, not just rich, you know, like I want to be able to do, uh, you know, I think townhomes are very important, like maybe not apartment buildings in LA, for example, but townhome living, people need that, you know, uh, yeah, there's a young generation that can't afford and needs like communal living. That's quality. I want to be able to do that. So, yeah, that's awesome. That's super special. Thanks. What, uh, what do you find has been easy for you? Easy. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, wow. It's a good question. Uh, maybe what's become easier for me is understanding how to go with the flow of things. You know, I think I used to um, set up a wall in front of me and say no, right? And be like, that's impossible. And instead, I like to think about it as like uh, oil and water. They don't mix, but they could flow one another to next to beside one another. So it's like, oh, somebody else I saw, I think it was on Instagram, somebody's story. And it said, uh, you can't control the waves or block them, but you could surf. So it's the same thing. So ride the wave. So that's become a lot easier for me. Like when I, when I get to a challenge, I'm like, okay, take a breath. It's going to resolve itself. Just you're, you're just a better architectural surfer. Yeah. Better, <laughs> better life surfer. I think. Like I don't get, I don't get as flustered when something like that happens. I'm like, okay, hold on, relax, take a breath. And I say the same thing to like my, my, uh, my designers in the office, you know, it's like, hold on. Yeah. 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 They said that at the city or the contractor said that just chill for a minute. Let's see how this solves it. Yeah. That comes with age. I feel like. Yeah, I think so. It does. Yeah. So outside of architecture, outside of DBA, what are we doing for, for fun? Travel, music. Cars. What, what's your favorite place you've traveled to recently? I just I, I try to do more local things now because I just don't have the time. So I didn't have any time off for six months doing this freaking project. And uh, last weekend I went to Paso Robles and I just got in the car and I just love it. I love getting up in the little hills and seeing the horizon. I love that. Um, that was it the nature aspect? You nature, had wine or nature. No, I stopped drinking. I stopped drinking uh, four or five months ago now, okay. yeah, which is wonderful. It just feels a lot more clarity in my mind. I sleep a lot better. It's nuts. I love it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how long it will continue, but right, right, so right. far it's been amazing. So this is just a test? I don't think it's a test because a test would have been a week. You know, a test would have been two weeks. I don't crave it. I'm, I'm fine. Right. I don't know. That's good. Yeah. I mean, it's healthy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's good. That's awesome. Thanks. Well, you play guitar, I know. Yeah. You're a huge Beatles fan. Yeah. So did your dad get you into the Beatles? My having mom. come here? Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. So uh, how'd that come about? Okay. This is interesting. So growing up in Israel, not speaking English, my mom used to play the, she plays piano and she used to play, you know, like, oh, blah, 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 all these songs and the piano. And I would listen. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Putting on the records. I was a huge Duran Duran fan. Sweet. I had a big poster, you know, up in my room with like the five faces. It was awesome. And I remember my sister buying me a uh, cassette and I would sing along to it. I didn't know the words. I'll just pretend, right? Right. And evidently, I told my mom when I was seven, when I grow up, I'm going to be a singer, but in English. That was my dream. 
And then, uh, yeah, you know, so the Beatles were monstrous. And I remember like in elementary school, junior high, a teacher came up to my parents and said, I wish Dan would remember his history as well as he remembers lyrics, you know, like, cause that, that was it. That was, that was it. And so I would put on my headphones and listen to the layers and listen to the layers. And I still do. And you know, it's a big part of my life. Yeah. I could give you like car statistics and like when I was 11, I could give you every batting average for everybody in baseball, but like, really? Yeah. I'm sure my wife would be like, <laughs> I wish you could just remember what's on our calendar a yeah. little better. Yeah, than yeah. <laughs> no, it's the same thing. So for me, it was just, uh, yeah, and yeah, I know it's 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 really cool. Actually, last year, this year, I got to see Paul McCartney perform at the Dodgers Stadium. Awesome! And he brought Ringo on. Yeah, I lost my shit. I mean, that was just like two Beatles. Like that's the first I've seen Paul so many times, but it was all of a sudden Ringo was there too, and they were ah, you know, like what? That's like fifty percent of the Beatles right there. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah, another one. Of well, and a hundred percent of those living. Exactly. Right? So, I mean, yeah, that's all you can get. It but. was nuts. It was, I also got to meet uh, George Harrison's son, yeah. which was really, really cool. And it was very organic. And I was like, whoa, this is, I'm talking to him now. This is nuts. So, yeah. Yeah. I interviewed my buddy Clark in North Carolina and he met John Lennon's son, oh, Sean. Wow. So yeah. you guys can get together. Yeah. And we talk about the swap the, stories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really, really cool. So are you into watches much? Uh, yeah, but no, not anymore. Like, okay. So go into that a little bit. I, I used to collect watches okay. and, uh, big time my thing. Now, uh, I'm a one watch guy and, uh, it wasn't by choice and it happened from uh, a theft. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And so now, uh, I'm over it. Um, it's, it's seriously like it happened to me twice, you know, and, uh, insurance, you have to insure it as a, as a jewelry piece. And I didn't, and it's too costly to do it. If you really look into it, it's way too costly. And so now, uh, I'm over it. I'm like, uh, eh, like what I were you, what were you into? What brands? Well, I, it started with Omega, Omega Seamaster. And I had one of those and I bought that for myself after like years and years of like working. And I was like, Oh my God, I bought this. Yeah, this is awesome. I love that. And I had, uh, uh, Ike pod, an Ike pod, uh, Mark Newson design. Mark Newson's like one of my heroes. I got yeah. to meet him too, which was amazing. Um, I had, yeah, I love that. And the classic, you know, like a Rolex, uh, Daytona, you know, it's just freaking beautiful. Um, yeah. I, the I, reason I ask, cause you do have like a really yeah. interesting piece on. So it looks like a GMT. It's a GMT that's PVD black, all uh, blacked all out. blacked out. And then I have a rubber strap on it. And uh, the rubber uh, deployment on the back. I mean, the black uh, PVD on the back, too. So what? who made that piece? Pro that, Hunter. Pro Hunter. Yeah, okay. that's out of the UK. Yep. And that was before, like, the Bamford stuff. Before, I don't know, it's all changed now. And now it's like everybody is like, that's, like, available and become became the norm. Uh, but I love this, and it's been with me, you know, and it's staying with me. And, uh, and also, you know, I think about it in a watch. Okay. It's a great design piece, but in terms of actual happiness, I don't see it anymore. Okay. So like, okay, you buy a car, it's still an object. It's still money for happiness, which is, I, I have a hard time with that in general, but there is something to a car. You could use it. You could drive it. 
you could get something back from it, right? You could connect. We're friends because of the cars, right? Like, yeah, that's true. Showing a watch, it's just showing off. I don't, I don't see anything much more to it. And, and back in the day, you know, it was hard to make a watch. There was a skill to making a watch. Now, I'm sorry, you could buy a $300 Seiko that has almost everything that all the other watches have, unless you get into the crazy complications, and then what? What is it actually doing to you? Just put on an Apple Watch. I, it, <laughs> I know people are going to hate me for that too, but it, it's just, it's lost to me. It's really lost its cachet, its moment. And it's just honestly a way to show people I have money. I, 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 it doesn't add, it doesn't add much to you. To, to I watch. respect that. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, and I get, I get, I cringe when I see on Instagram, if I, I follow some car people, you know, and I see them post like their hand on the their steering, steering wheel, wheel with a fucking watch. <laughs> Wonderful. You have a Panerai. I don't know what to tell you. It's like, uh, yeah, that's a photo of a Panerai inside of whatever car. That's, I don't care. Like, it's so boring. And so you've made enough money to buy it. Did you even, is it customized? Is it like, what is it about you that's in there besides the fact that your wallet got fat enough that you were able to buy it? Like, there's, it's so funny because like there's those stories too of people who like, save for years and years and years to buy the one watch and then they'll go into like a dealership of a car that they don't own and then take that photo inside the dealership i haven't seen that (laughs) i I mean i'm sure i've seen that i just didn't know that and yeah exactly that's a part of like the whole social media world right right Um, right and you not knowing means they were successful of course there you go they were successful. i'm sure i mean do you know about the airplane things people uh you could rent uh go into a private jet to take a photo in it oh sure yeah i didn't yeah. know that oh I, I mean it makes sense well i used to be a car broker here okay. for like movies and tv and stuff so yeah if you pay the day rate to rent a private jet yeah granted it might cost you five grand no but there's but, but it, it, no that's the thing it doesn't yeah. so there's companies oh the that, prices have come down <laughs> tremendous that there's companies that do that where it's like a half an hour you know it's like appointments to just get on a jet and take your photos and you could be like, hey, look at me. I'm into, you know, Prague. I mean, I also seen, I mean, forget it. I mean, social media is like a whole other thing. You know, I see so many fakes. It's unbelievable. You're that's, like, that's honestly a different podcast. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dan, this was super fun, man. Thank Absolutely. you for uh, shedding the light on everything Bridge House and, and kind My of pleasure. the growth Thanks of DBA. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. All right. Well, let's, awesome. uh, let's, go, let's go for a ride. Okay. <laughs> All right, buddy. Bye. I'd like to thank Dan again for taking the time and hosting me at Bridge House. It's really an incredible structure and uh, really nothing like it that I've ever seen. A really, really special place. As always, big shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for providing the theme music to the podcast and clear audio for the headphone hookup. Uh, Until next week, I will catch you guys soon. Thank you so much.